All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome everybody to episode 10, season one of The Purple Room. And, um, you know, once again, another riveting guest. And I want to welcome everybody to The Purple Room, Mrs. Olivia Scott. Hello. Yay, can we give her a purple welcome? (laughs) (laughs) I love the charisma. And um, I was looking at the calendar and I'm like, wow, if we would have got you at least a week before, you could have made it for um, Women's Month. Oh, that would have been awesome. That's, that would have been awesome. I mean, when it comes down okay. to it, um, in the Purple Room, we honor all different types of um, genders, cultures, and backgrounds. And last month was your month, and it would have been awesome to basically have you in that. But My we'll month is every month, though. But thank you. I like that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you. And um, Olivia, um, in terms of your resume, mm. very impressive. Thank I mean, you. we won't go down the list, but we will, I guess, transition through the journey of where you've been and where you're going and where you're at. Okay. Um, so. So to even touch on it, um, I always love to speak to my guests about their origins because um, I, the way I was raised, the one thing I, I, I was taught is to where you're at and it's where you're from that kind of represents where you're at at that time and moment. So to kind of get into it, um, Olivia, where are you from? I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. 100% clear about the 901. The 901. The 901. Okay. Mm-hmm. So with Memphis, Tennessee, um, its origins are pretty deep, especially with um, music and the culture out there. And mm-hmm. I, I believe, because um, I know we have New York, L.A., and then the Tennessee area is a pretty big music hub out there. Nashville, Nashville and Memphis, correct. and they're, they're different from what they do. Nashville is definitely country, right. and then Memphis is the home of the blues. Home of the blues. And so you can't, I don't think you can really live in Memphis or Nashville and not have an appreciation for music. Mm-hmm. I find the same thing with New Orleans as well. There's right. certain places where if you're from those cities, everybody plays an instrument, everybody sings, everybody performs, just because it's just what you do. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, it seems like the environment around you brought you through it. But um, was there like a personal um, experience you had, or like what was like that highlighting moment? Where it was like, hey, I I see myself having a future in the entertainment business. Well, my father. Johnny Scott um, is a legend in black music. He was the first African-American to have a television show in his own name. And that was 1968 to 1973 in Memphis. So he had a variety show very similar to Johnny Carson. He's a local CBS affiliate. And it featured all of the African-American talent who came through the South. So whether it was Lou Rawls or Diane Carroll or the Shy Lights, whoever, they had to go through the Johnny Scott show. My father was also a singer as well as a composer and a writer. So I grew up in a household where it was just very musical. It's kind of what happened. So growing up in that, it's just what you did. Mother was kind of a manager. It's can you grow up in that world. So I became a spoken word artist in high school Mm -hmm. and all through college. And Mm -hmm. so I was kind of a performing person. Trying to figure out my way, I began being a radio DJ in college as well. So I think when it's what you're around, it's what you've been socialized to find something in one of those lanes. Right. So it kind of came in my household. My eyes just lit up when you said variety show because uh, one of my <laughs> personal dreams is to you know build a platform kind of similar to what your dad did or Johnny Carson or the Arsenio Halls, even Dave Letterman. Mm-hmm. You know, And being around that environment of your dad providing a platform for blacks during that time, um, how was the atmosphere? Because I know that was actually around the time of the civil rights, post-civil rights. Yeah. Here in the South. And I asked him recently, you know, because of course I was born in 73, right? Mm-hmm. So the show ended the year that I was born and gotcha. he just kind of went into production and doing his own music after the show went down. And I asked him, I said, what was it like? He says, I felt like I was a little bit before my time. Like a lot of the fights. And you also have to understand Memphis is also where Dr. King was shot. 
who was right. assassinated. So it was a very interesting environment for him to have that opportunity. Right. Um, in many respects, I think that he was one of the beneficiaries of the civil rights movement in Memphis and kind of creating that right. for him. Right. But it was a lot of battles. I understand it was a lot of battles just you know getting the time slot. Mm-hmm. He was on at midnight on a Sunday night. You know what I mean? So for him, he felt like, you know, he definitely was before his time. Um, He did one of the first sponsorships in that space where he would go and uh, stag beer, which is a beer at the time, Mm -hmm. was a sponsor of the show. And anywhere he went in Memphis, like he had to have a stag beer. Anyway, so it's interesting kind of how with me working in sponsorship marketing now and the parallels and I can, he's 81 now, I can have conversations with him and he knows exactly what I'm talking about with what I do. Right. Sponsorship and placement is definitely key. Very different then, right? right? But it's, always been you you need a property and you need a brand in order to make those things work so property and brand yeah i'm learning a lot and (laughs) to even kind of throw it back to so you said that you kind of got it started as you as an individual doing um spoken word shows in high school yeah and then you transition even into the arts in college um which college did you attend i went to university of missouri okay yeah, so went to University of Missouri in Columbia for journalism. For journalism, mm-hmm. and then after that, well, how was the experience in college? Let's speak about that. I was uh, very focused. I was always very focused, and University of Missouri is the number one journalism school in the country. So there's just a, a quite a bit of competition, just a lot in terms of just the racial issues, as you guys may remember. That was a school that had the whole racial blow up a few years ago. So my goal was to get out of there in four years. Mm-hmm. That was it. You did it. Yeah, I did it. You know, I was on campus. I had a lot of leadership positions and whatever, but I was like, let's just get this over with. Mm -hmm. In four years, I understood that the benefit of graduating with the University of Missouri Columbia journalism degree would take me very far. So I wasn't going to let anything deter me from that, but I had to get it done quickly. Right. Very driven. Yeah, just... Yeah, and I had all these internships while I was there. I interned at Atlantic Records in New York. I interned with a promoter, had the two radio stations I was a DJ at. So I made sure that I maximized the experience and the exposure that was available to me on campus, but I was out in four years flat. So let's go back to that because you said you you were in New York, but going to school in Missouri. Did you have to travel back or that was post-college? No, no, no. So left Memphis in 91, Mm -hmm. Mizzou, 91 to 95 interned in New York in the summer of 94 Got it. Got at Atlantic it. Records. Got it. Graduated 95, moved to Chicago. It was 95 to 2001. I was in Chicago. I moved to New York in 2001. Okay. So back to the internship in 94 Four. Yes. at Atlantic. At Atlantic, yep. Um, I feel that's where hip-hop started to find, um, I guess, a, a cemented space in terms of really taking... I guess you could say the genre further and more international. I guess that was like the beginning of like the Biggie Small situation. That's when Tupac was kind of like, was Atlantic involved at that time or it was the other labels? See, I think that was like the Def Jams, the right. Island. I think that was different. I right. mean, I can tell you who we launched that summer. I love we launched that. Brandy. Okay, great. Right? Great. It was the Brandy, Aaliyah, and Monica that was going on that summer of 94 right. that I was a part of. Changing okay. Faces. Um there's this other little guy group that I can't remember right now that was really, really good. You know the song? I can't remember it. But it was, if you remember the summer of Changing Faces, I Want to Be Down by Brandy mm-hmm. and Monica, The Boy's Mind, all that. That was that summer. And That's Aaliyah it. was coming out that same summer. Mm-hmm. So that was, so I don't remember the hip hop part. Okay, so it was more the R&B side of things. Okay. Yeah, and it could have been happening, to be fair, right. at one of the other labels. But Atlantic, I worked under Richard Nash, who okay. was a legend in black music. He was the EVP of black music. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I worked in the jazz division of black music. Got it, got it. It's interesting. I mean, 
even with labels back then and labels versus now, I'm sure there are a lot of big differences in terms of how they run campaigns or even deal with artists. I would say one thing about Atlantic, their roster right now, there's a lot of hip hop now. So it's, it's good mm. to see that that has changed. And because I'm, I'm pro hip hop, I love all genres, but I, I kind of grew up <laughs> in that golden age. So I'm like an advocate for it, but neither here nor there. So one of the things I would add that I love, and I don't just say this because I'm an alma mater, I think, of Atlantic, uh-huh. but Atlantic, one of the things that they've been really successful with doing in terms of their artists is they've had a really amazing roster of executives that have stayed a very long time. Yes. So yes. whether it's Joy Pitts, mm-hmm. um, oh, the other young lady, she's going to kill me. But there's so many of them that have right. been there. Mike Kaiser, Julie Greenwald. Julie Greenwald. Right. They've been there Calman. forever. Right. Yeah, Mike Kalman. So because of that, uh, Craig Kalman, because of that, they've been able to, I think really deliver their artists right. a really great product management service. And that's important because even the artists coming in and some of them have this bravado like why well, sign a label, sign with a label but when you see the executives that have been here and some of them have came from the Jeff, the Def Jam mold and nonetheless and um, you see that family environment I think it encourages them to want to sign up with them sooner or yeah. later. Yeah. Right. Because they have, there's a way they do it, whether it's, you know, Sydney, Marketson, and publicity, working with Joy Pitts and marketing. Right. The way they work, they've been working together for 10, 15 years. They right. know how to launch. Right. That's awesome. You know? That's awesome. So, so we're at 94 right now when you interned. Okay, I'm sure that was an amazing experience. We'll leave mm-hmm. that there. <laughs> <laughs> but you had mentioned something to me that you had made... I wouldn't say much of a pivot because they are cousins, but you had made like a turn to advertising and that was when you journeyed out to Chicago. Yeah. So it was actually, um, it was a pretty pivotal situation that at the time I didn't appreciate. Okay. So when I worked at Atlantic, I worked for Nicole Sutherland. She was my direct boss in uh, jazz music and we became good friends. Of course I wanted to, upon graduation, return back to Atlantic records mm-hmm. And she said, and this is all I've I've said this many times, she said, no, don't do it. Mm. What's happening with the music industry is that it is, there's an issue with Napster and the digitization, and I don't know if we're going to be able to manage it. And I think that you have a quality degree from a really quality university in marketing. Your love and passion for music is never going to go anywhere. So I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to pitch for you to get a job here. Mm -hmm. I want you to go start your career in marketing and advertising and trust that later on in your life, your passion for music will still be there and you're going to be able to monetize it and add real value to a music organization. She, what did you say her name was? Her name was Nicole Sutherland. She's a visionary. She was a vi- She was 25 at the time. Right, because while was, all this chaos was going on, I'm sure you know a lot of the uh, bigger wigs were pulling out their hairs, throwing a lot of, uh, uh, I guess you say, legal stuff at Napster. She was like, all right, let me look over the storm and this is where it's going to be in the next 10, 15 years. And she was an assistant at wow. 25 years old, wow. right? right? She had a master's and undergraduate in jazz studies from Howard University and she was just clear about okay she too had the same kind of passion I did of wanting to work in music family for music she was a singer herself but saw okay I don't know if I should have anybody else follow me so I'm gonna tell this young lady to go another route Mm -hmm. at the time I was like is she a hater I mean I I really (laughs) right because I really wanted to be at Atlantic I really wanted to work in the music industry and she was like no like don't don't do this I'm telling you I'm not gonna put in no Mm -hmm. so I listened to her and my family said, okay, what does she say? Mm -hmm. And so that was when I got the internship at Leo Burnett in Chicago and changed courses and didn't move to New York. I moved to Chicago in 01. I mean, in 95. Leo Burnett, I've heard of them. They're a pretty old advertisement firm. And so when you got over there, how was the experience out there in Chicago? 
was talk uh, to me, talk to me. It was uh, I mean, you gotta understand, there are a few places like New York where, as a person of color, you really have an opportunity that's equal. You know what I mean? In New York, there are opportunities where you can just come in. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. Chicago is still very polarized racially. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we know that just south side, north side. So I definitely felt it. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, um, I'm a person of color and I'm young and I got to figure this out. So I felt it. But the opportunities to be able to start my career working at Burnett. Ogilvy, DDB, Draft, those advertising agencies yeah. didn't really get that solid foundation. If I could just deal with some of the racial issues that were happening, and they were they were very real, but I've never been one that's like, they did it because I'm black. You just feel it and you just push through it. Right. You know, I'd gone to University of Missouri, Columbia, so I understood how to just push through it right. and just do the very best work. I think, you know, people of color understand that you do have to work much, much, much harder. So I just worked, literally, I worked all night and all weekends. I had no social life, no boyfriends, nothing. And I just was like, I'm very clear about the caliber of professional experience I'm able to get. And Mm -hmm. if I have to work on weekends, sleep, it doesn't really matter. I need to get this while I'm young. And that's awesome because it seems like through those different um, companies you worked with, you use that to kind of boost your portfolio, your knowledge, your, your resources, your networks. Mm-hmm. So so how many years you were there for? I was there for six. Six years. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's 01. I'm kind of like... 95 put, to 01. Okay, so mm-hmm. 95 to 01. So 01, after that, what kind of happened after that? I moved here. To New York City. Right? So I've been in Chicago and it was like, you know, I was getting old. And I was like, "Am I? is this it? Is, are we not going to do the New York thing? We know what Nicole told us. She told us like to get your foundation, but are you going to be like a lifer? Like I'd put money down on buying a little co-op or condo in Chicago and mm-hmm. literally had this kind of epiphany moment where I was like, no, you need to just go to New York and figure it out. So I called the place that I had the money down on, the earnest money down, and said, I'm moving. Mm-hmm. I have a job in New York. I did not have a job in New York. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I lived with my cousin on the Lower East Side for the first five months on the floor, uh-huh. and I hustled. I met people, and I got a job after my fifth month. Okay, and that was at? In Demand Television. Okay. Yeah, In-demand. I was working as a director of partnership marketing and promotions. Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like the whole trajectory, although music was very close, at that time and moment, it was advertising. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember, too, you had mentioned that you had the experience of working with um, Steve Stout, one of yes, his ventures. Yes, Am I jumping, am I like fast forwarding down yeah, the timeline? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. So um, I can tell you quickly. Mm-hmm. So In Demand, 01 to 04, then Live Nation. And right. that'll kind of segue into Steve Stout, right? right? So went to Live Nation in 04 and uh-huh. was there until 2008 as okay. their vice president of sponsorship marketing, Right. right. There, the reason why that's important is I was managing the Wrigley piece of business, Wrigley gum, right? right? And I left, and the story that was told to me by him and his assistant was the shared client that we both had. He managed the Wrigley, if you remember the Chris Brown, double your pleasure, he created that, his agency created that. Mm. So he had Wrigley, the advertising client, whereas I was managing them from a sponsorship sponsorship activation. So apparently the client, we shared the client, her name was Tierney, I've forgotten Tierney's last name, but she said that I was amazing and that he should find me. And so his assistant reached out to me on Facebook and said, Tierney said, we should find you, what are you doing? So even with the Live Nation situation, because um, I have a lot of respect for Live Nation. I mean, mm-hmm. when I did my research on them, they were a Canadian-based company. I believe um, it was a group of promoters or whatever that... Go ahead. It was a group of promoters, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. that um, were rivals at one point, but they were trying to figure out the best way to penetrate the um, American market. And 
is it true that they came together and kind of created like this conglomerate and then started buying up venues and now they rule the world? Or? You got most of it. Okay, like cool. it just a little bit, little tweak. Okay, so thanks. Michael Rapino, who is right. the president, he is Canadian. Right. Okay. He came over from Canada. Got it. Okay. Got it, got it. But the company was formed from. You've heard of Clear Channel. I've heard of Clear Channel. Okay. So Clear Channel at that time was Clear Channel Entertainment, Clear Channel Radio, Clear Channel Television. Right. Clear Channel Entertainment was divested from Clear Channel Radio because mm. the guys at Clear Channel couldn't figure out how to monetize it properly. So they divested it, and then Robert Sillerman of SFX Entertainment, mm. he bought it, right? And then SFX became Live Nation. Got it, got it. Right, and so then, yes, they did go and they aggregated all these various promoters, right. and they made them a part of the Live Nation family. If only, I, if only if I was old enough around that time, I hope they would have picked me up. Did you get a chance to meet Arthur Fogle, or have you I heard of not. him? Okay, you've heard not. of him? Of course, the, yeah. of course. I think his story is pretty amazing, too. Aside from the fact that he took Lady Gaga on a worldwide tour without an album, if I'm not mistaken, that was pretty awesome of him. But I'm sure there were some great stories in that building. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I was there when they were like creating Rock Nation. Right. Yeah. I remember there was a moment, and I don't think this is a bad thing to say, but um, we had one of our first town hall meetings, and uh, Rapino was interesting because he made a comment around, we're going to just have to ride out the wave of hip hop. Mm-hmm. And I remember, even though I'm not a big fan of hip hop, I'm more of, a, of soul and R&B, mm-hmm. I was like, what do you mean? And I had the opportunity to meet him at one of our big meetings, and he said, listen, like, it just doesn't translate live. Mm-hmm. You know, like a hip hop experience doesn't translate live, and we gotta write it out. But then they had to figure it out, and that was when they did the partnership with Rock Nation. They right. had to figure it out as a business. Right. It's been pretty lucrative for them up until now. I mean, what, 15, what 10 years later? Yeah. But neither here nor there. But kind of being in that and like I'm observing your story so mm-hmm. it's like the music industry is going this way you're in advertisement and I'm sure at that time it was booming then you went over to I guess live event production and sponsorship collaboration music yeah. industry still wiggling around but your trajectory is here and then you kind of double back and then you go back to advertisement advertising with Steve Stout and that's with translation you skip one step let's go back um unfortunately <laughs> way too many positions over the years so um at Live Nation and Vibe calls mm-hmm. and says, will you come be our associate publisher head of marketing? So that's kind of what happened. So okay. I went to Vibe. I believe that was 2009, 2008. I, I think it was 2008, 2009. And Vibe folded within a year. Mm-hmm. Right? And my father in particular mm-hmm. said, are you sure you want to leave Live Nation? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seems like it has a pretty good trajectory. Right. You sure about right. this? They're buying up all the stadiums, honey. Where are you going? Yeah, like, are you sure? Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, in terms of him being proud of me from an accomplishment perspective, he was like, how many other little black girls are there at the vice president? And mm-hmm. I was like, none. He was like, exactly. If you leave, you're not going to be able to get back in. I'm like, whatever, whatever. I want to go work at Vibe. Vibe was my favorite magazine mm-hmm. on earth. I was a charter subscriber in 1995 when they launched, right in 1981 when they launched. I wanted to be there. So left. We folded in a year. Mm-hmm. And that was when I went freelance. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was when Stout found me mm-hmm. when I was freelance and independent. And it was just it was very serendipitous because I wasn't looking. I was finishing. I was in graduate school at the time mm-hmm. and I didn't want to go work in another full time environment. I was just going to kind of we folded and I got to figure out how to hustle up enough money to pay graduate degree. But I wasn't going to go back into a full time environment, managing people and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I get this Facebook message from Lisa, who is his, his a partner and assistant at the time, saying, Steve would like to meet with you. And so that was when I went in and I worked with him and I functioned as his chief of staff Mm -hmm. for a year for translation. Mm -hmm. And then after that year, he said, well, would you like to go and be the CMO at Carol's daughter? So Mm -hmm. 
That's yeah. what happened. That was awesome. I'm, I'm a little mad with translation because I sent my resume at the time. I think I was coming, it was like 2007, 2000. I was coming out of college and I wanted to intern there. You know, I, I got caught up in the, the Steve Stout aspect and then what he, what he represented, what mm-hmm. he was trying to do. You guys never got back to me. But, uh, <laughs> I got there, what, 09, 10? <laughs> so you but, were you know, there. it's a lot of, it's interesting because, um, mm-hmm. you know, Steve is a remarkable, remarkable genius in many regards. People really, really respect him. People love and hate him, right? That happens. But, yeah, just, you know, it happens, right? When you're very clear and you have a very clear point of view right. about things, people either like you or they hate you. We had a lot of people that would just come knock. People would just show up at the office. They felt he was that kind of person. You could just show up. Right, right, right. I'd have to go meet him. It was a very interesting experience. I wasn't that brave, but I I could see. (laughs) But um, the one thing I noticed that Steve really embraced and kind of went back to one of the conversations you said took place at Live Nation is that he always believed that hip-hop was this worldwide thing. Um, Why I love Steve so much because he's from Queens. I'm Mm -hmm. from Queens, so it's like... Aside from him, Russell, and a few other Mavericks, they're like the people like, oh, they make it. I could do it. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. But he definitely embraced the cool factor of what hip-hop could um, accomplish. And he even cross-marketed it with uh, Barack Obama being in office. I mean, with the book, um, The Ten of America. America. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? And I think it was brilliant. I think he was right. I think there were a lot of issues. Like when he came out with the polyethnicity, you know, mm-hmm. of America, there were a lot of critics around it. Mm-hmm. But when I looked at how hip hop music is a music that transcends all cultures mm-hmm. and really does unify mm-hmm. that particular generation of people, mm-hmm. I think that he was absolutely right. Right. He was definitely on to something. And then yeah. um, one thing I learned from him, because it's like when you watch a, a movie or any type of advertisement, you don't, it's like good advertising doesn't sell you. You know, it kind of speaks to you. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that he, I got from it is product placement. You know, I, I love Men in Black as, mm-hmm. a, as a kid. And um, when I saw it, I was like, all right, cool. Mom, I need these sunglasses. Got the sunglasses, but didn't know that the placement of those sunglasses was obviously, you know, uh, a sponsorship deal or something that was brought up to obviously get the, the people to buy it. And um, right then and there, I was like, wow, subliminal marketing is definitely something that's key to these days. Absolutely. I mean, from from your observation of the industry, are there any type of campaigns that you have seen that you were like, wow, that was brilliant or you've been a part of? I had to throw that at you. Yeah, you did. You did. There's so many. There's so many that I like. Um, there's one. It's probably not going to be the answer that you want, but it it always, I love it. It's the American Eagle campaign mm. they did last year. Okay. It was an outdoor campaign. You could definitely see it in the West 4th Street Station. Right. And they were focusing on millennials. And right. in the campaign, they focused on I can of American, mm. right? And it was this whole campaign that would empower young people, yeah, empower okay. blacks, entire LGBT, right? So right. I remember that campaign because it's like you had to look at it and be like, oh, like of the American, right? Let's focus on the can, right? I can. And I so in terms of supplemental marketing, I remember I was like, that's just fascinating. Right. Genius. I like what they did. Genius, genius. Okay, that's awesome. So. All right, so let's try to, try to keep it timeliney because I've been jumping around. I'm so intrigued by your story. It's okay, thank you. But even back to the translation aspect, so mm-hmm. you know you had your situation there, and then what was the next step after that? So that's when I went to Carol's Daughter as their chief marketing officer. Okay. Yeah. Carol's Daughters, correct me if I'm wrong, who owned, who owned it at Steve. the time? Steve. Stout. Steve and Will, Jada, and Mary all had an investment okay. portion in it. And is that still up until this point? I or did they? I don't know. I left in like 11 or 12. So I don't know. Well, here's what I know. I don't, I would, if I had to retract that, 
I would say that we know that Carol's daughter was purchased by L'Oreal. Okay. Right? So in terms of how everything was divested and stocks and stuff were distributed after the sale, I don't know. Right. But at that time, it was owned by those people. Okay. So we're touching on a lot of like the business aspect of where you've been, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm hearing a lot of transitions and I'm hearing a lot of, all right, you were at this place, found another opportunity that worked out and then you transitioned. Like spiritually, like how did you know that something was on the other side? Because some other individuals after that first stop at Atlantic, you know, when um <laughs> the young lady told you, hey, you know, you should probably not come back here. They would have, you know, probably left. Like what kept you going? Oh, I have a lot of, lot of faith. It's 100%. I am very grounded mm-hmm. in God. Growing up in Memphis, right. you go to church three days a week. Right, right. Okay? Um, and luckily, by the time I got to Chicago, I was like, okay, mama said to pray. Right. And I told her, every move I made, it was with prayer. Like right. every time when I, I left Chicago for New York and every job I left for, it was right. a huge leap of faith. Right. And sometimes I don't know how I did it. It's like I had nine, I worked at nine different companies. Right. And it's a little bit dizzying sometimes to go back and look at it, but it definitely was uh, a lot of faith in God that it was the next step. And I think there was something else that was always happening for me is I was always restless. When I got to a point when I felt like I couldn't learn anymore and I couldn't do anything more for that organization, like Live Nation, my father was you know upset with me about it, but I've been there for four years and it may it definitely is a first world problem, but my my projects were only getting bigger but I wasn't learning any new skill sets. And I have to be in an environment where I'm learning. So my first deal at Live Nation was a 20 market amphitheater deal, right? My last deal, and that was like $2 million deal. My last deal was a $10 million deal that was global with three global tours, two stateside tours, and 40 venues, amphitheaters, and arenas. So you just learn how to more adeptly manage more stuff, but I didn't get any new skills, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm always guided by, am I learning? Right. You know, and so it was like at each point, at each juncture, okay, I think I've learned what, except for Vibe. Mm-hmm. Vibe was taken from me. Right, right. You know, I loved Vibe, loved it. It was my favorite job. That and Live Nation were my favorite jobs. But, you know, you're like, okay, am I getting anything more? And the reason why I chose to do the Carol's Daughter was because in the marketing world, there are three sides. There's the agency side, the brand side, and the media side, the mm-hmm. property side. So Vibe, ESPN, any, NBC, those are your properties, your brands. We know what brands are. And then you have your agency side. Mm-hmm. So I'd done the agency stint, you know, from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then I'd done the media properties, whether it was Live Nation or Vibe or In Demand, but I had not done the brand side. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, even though... I was fine working independently and working with Steve at you know, Translation. I knew that, okay, for longevity of career, if I'm really going to be a consultant and have my own firm, it would be smart for me to get that brand side. Mm. So you just got to think about it strategically. Where are you really trying to go? And does that next move make sense? Or does staying make mm. sense? Well, I'm, I mean, looking at it holistically, it's like you, I would say, cornered the market, but you worked in all three of the aspects that affected, I guess, where you wanted to go independently. And now... All of those are, you have a lot of people in your Rolodex, mm-hmm. you have the information and the knowledge, and then, you know, a lot of resources that you could use. So, strategically, that was the best move for you. I think so. That's a grand strategy. But you don't even, it's interesting, it's like, I look back on it and I think it worked out, but I, I have to tell people, I really didn't have, like, a master strategy. Like, right. I have some friends who literally say they had everything charted out, they knew when they were 10 years old they were going to be in Fortune Top 100. I was like, no, no, I didn't know any of that. Right. Things just kept coming, and at a certain point, I felt 
kind of guilty because things kept just coming. You know what I mean? No, like, no, you you attracted it in your faith and your prayer. Well, and I was going to say, I think you know, I felt a little guilty at a certain point, but then what I realized, and I tell everybody that all my mentees is like, if you do the work and you focus on your reputation with everything you do, like really do the work, people will find you. I mean, that whole story of like Steve finding me, the whole story of Vibe finding me, because you know, in the entertainment world, there's a lot of people that are flighty that are really just excited about working with artists and da-da. but then there are people who really do the work right you know do the spreadsheets i mean it's what i do i have my own firm now and i work with essence festival i do the daytime programming i do those spreadsheets i call the ta- I'm, I'm in it you know it's not just because i get free tickets to the concerts you know right. so people will remember those that really did the work and who make their lives easier wow. so i mean <laughs> with this podcast, the one thing I'm getting from it, because I, I kind of like had like a little personal um, stunt in terms of what I wanted to do. And I feel like with me, it's like physically I had it together, uh, mentally I had it together, but spiritually. And you know what? I, I use my grandfather as like somebody who, because you speak to your father a lot for, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, um, spiritual guidance as well. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to my grandfather and I was like, you know, um, you know, grandpa, I don't know what I want to do next. And he was like, just pray on it. Mm-hmm. And I um, always had faith in, in God. Um, but never, I guess you could say, practice prayer as much as I should have. Okay. And I was like, you know what? I've, I've done everything else. I've read this business book. I went to this seminar. I've, you know, physically, I feel like I've got myself together better. But I was like, spiritually, let me get that in terms of the Holy Trinity. And ever since I've done that, and this is probably going on five years, my life has changed. So I want the listeners to kind of get that from it. It's like, you know, aside from having the intellect behind it, you should have faith in a sense. And I'm not saying join a religion or, mm-hmm. you know, faith. Faith. Yeah. I believe in that. And bet on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have to bet on yourself. It's like every time I made a move, I was always nervous. But then when I got there, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm here. Now I got to do the work. Right. You know, because they actually believed that I could do the job on the other side of the table. They gave me the job. So now that I'm here, I got to do the work. Right. So. Beautiful story. Thank you. But in conclusion, I, I, I want to double back in conclusion in terms of what you're doing right now. And you had mm-hmm. mentioned that you have your own firm now. Um, do you want to speak to our listeners a little bit about what's going on in the firm, what you're doing? Yeah. Uh, so my firm is Omerge Alliances, omergealliances.com. Awesome. And it is a marketing strategy and marketing management firm. Mm-hmm. I specialize in beauty as well as entertainment clients. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I really was really crystallized to me when I worked with Stout in particular was that there are there's no shortage of ideas. There's so many ideas out there, just creators, creators, creators right? But there are very few that can really execute well. Right. And so while it's not the glamorous part, right? That's what I enjoy doing. So in particular, I have the Essence Festival. I've been with them for four years. I do do two of the stages where I program, do programming strategy, as well as all the booking and execution for the stages and production. And I also have the Asheville Yoga Festival where we do similar things as well as sponsorship marketing. And then I also work with an agency called Media Storm where we have a lot of television and film properties Mm -hmm. where I do partnership and sponsorship marketing marketing for them and I have a staff of between three to five they float with me in terms of contracting I staff up and I tell everybody that when you're first starting there's no need to like 
overwhelm yourself with overhead, right. you know, fixed expenses and a lot of people like get contractors. Right. You know, I think for a very long time, it was just me out of the house. And then finally we grew to get like an assistant and you get finally get a workspace and all that. So right. it's been an evolution over the, over the number of years. Now I'm at a point where I'm really excited. I am looking at additional beauty clients and mm -hmm. getting more in that lane. That's awesome. So thank you. Awesome. And um, I wish you guys the best of luck in terms thank of your you. endeavors. Thank um, you. Olivia, you guys too. Thank you. Thank you. I know you're very busy. So um, to our listeners, Olivia, she has to go. But <laughs> <laughs> To yoga. Right? Right, right. I'm finishing my training, as right, you we know. We've got two minutes. Can you t speak to us a little bit yeah, about yoga? Yeah, so, you, so you're doing yoga as well. What got you into that? Uh, my divorce. Okay. Yep, yep. So that was... 2014 mm -hmm. and I've always been physical like I like spiritual physical and spiritual and I found that my refuge was cycling and then physically I couldn't do the cycling as much as I used to and so I found a yoga class and then from there I kept doing it and I'd be in the classes and we're opening the heart chakra and I would just feel something right. and so I've been doing yoga strongly for the past four years and then I created um, a new Kind of, it's kind of yoga called Freedom at the Mat. Right. And it is for women in particular who have been damaged from relationships to really heal their hearts and have a space for them. So I've been in teacher training so that I can actually teach them in the proper way. Right. And I graduate May 5th. And until then, my life is a little bit crazy. And I'm always walking around in yoga pants because I have to get to class constantly. Right. Well, uh, in between running a business. Well, we wish you the best in terms of your Thank graduation. You. Thank we'll, you. We'll pop some champagne here for you. Yes. Um, I mean, Namaste. <laughs> Namaste. <laughs> <laughs> but um ladies and gentlemen i want to you know just want to thank everybody for listening um this is episode 10 season one of the purple room with um olivia scott peace thank you all right cool thank you guys that was awesome